This episode is brought to you by Brooklyn Botanic Garden, a stunning 52-acre garden in the heart of Brooklyn, featuring spectacular plant displays and inspiring public programs year-round. Learn more at bbg.org. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported podcast network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. This year, we're celebrating 10 years of food radio. For the past decade, we've been taking you behind the scenes of farms, restaurants, breweries, schools, cafeterias, and more. It's been 10 years, and we're just getting started. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Good evening, and welcome to Eating Matters, where we talk about food policy and how it impacts all of us. I'm your host, Jenna Liute, and we're broadcasting from Roberta's on Heritage Radio Network. Now that it is officially fall and school is back in session, I thought it would be quite timely to talk about one of my favorite topics, which is, of course, school lunch. And to help me do so today is Jennifer Gaddis, Assistant Professor of Civil Society and Community Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. She's also the author of the forthcoming book, The Labor of Lunch, Why We Need Real Food and Real Jobs in American Public Schools. And I'm so pleased it's brought her to the show today. Welcome, Jennifer. Thanks for having me, Jenna. Absolutely. Um, So love your book. Super excited to tell everybody all about it. Um, My first question for you is, is that you, so you're a a professor of um, civil society and community studies. I mean, do you have a background in food or why did you decide (laughs) to to write about? And and nobody ever knows what that is. (laughs) Um, So I'm in a very interdisciplinary department. And I would say that the thing that really is common between me and some of the other faculty in the department is that um, we're all really dedicated to doing action-oriented research. So I would say that um, this um, kind of core of doing activist scholarship is what unites us all together. But Mm -hmm. we bring lots of different training to the table. So my own background is actually in environmental studies. So I came to the study of the National School Lunch Program largely because I was really interested in farm-to-school programs and how that could potentially help um, local farmers and also help with some of the environmental impact of school lunch. And it was really through the first um, kind of months of field work where I was really spending time out on farms, but also in school kitchens and in distribution facilities, kind of trying to get a lay of the land. Um, that I really fell in love with um, just spending time in the kitchens and talking to the workers there. And um, I would say that I sort of moved a little bit further into um, the food studies side of things versus environmental studies as my work progressed. Mm-hmm. And um, as I really got to learn more about the issues, um, I would say that um, I really couldn't stay in this box of environmental studies. I had to really learn a lot um, about labor, and I had to really learn a lot about American history, um, and I had to um, really learn a lot about um, all sorts of things in order to kind of make sense of where we are now and where we could potentially go in the future. So environmental um studies is kind of my core area, um, and I think I bring a lot of that to um, my analysis, but I would say I have a really deep love for um, the kind of women's history, gender mm-hmm. studies side of things, and the labor studies side as well. Yeah, and that, and we're going to talk about this in a minute, but like the sort of feminist 
politics was a big, a core theme in your book, and also like the intersectionality yeah. of feminist politics with labor issues, with the environmental issues, with health, and so there's a lot to unpack here. <laughs> I feel like <laughs> it was a big undertaking. Um, but yeah. okay, so then I mean, so and your goal in writing this was this to kind of elevate the you know, the profile of the school food, um, worker itself, or like, what was your kind of, as you started to unpeel the layers, like what was your driving force behind really putting forth this, uh, this work? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I would say that, um, my main motivation is to really introduce kind of a different angle to conversations about school lunch reform. So I think that there are a lot of people who are doing really wonderful work trying to get school gardens um, in schools, um, trying to develop farm-to-school programs, trying to um, convert like heat-and-serve programs where a lot of what they're doing is just unboxing and baking um, foods that are made in faraway factories, like converting that to scratch cooking. Like there's a lot of like really great energy um, that's very much focused on the food itself. Mm -hmm. And I think that sometimes um, what can get lost in the conversation is the role that um, workers and the kind of labor structure that's been built into the National School Lunch Program, um, like that piece, I think really needs to be changed um, in order for us to really realize the full potential of the program. Because one of the things I noticed pretty quickly as I was visiting schools is that there might be a whole lot of energy and a whole lot of intent behind wanting to source local foods, for example. But if they um, aren't set up to cook from scratch, so if they right. don't have a kitchen yeah, um, that yeah. you know, is set up with you know, the right kind of equipment, and if they um, don't have um, workers who are hired for enough hours to actually be doing that work, they're pretty much dependent on just... Um, you know, purchasing foods that can be um, reheated and served very, very easily. And it's very difficult for them to start making um, these values-based purchases and saying we actually want to support, like, our local food and farm economies through these um, public dollars that we're in charge of um, through our school food expenditures. So I think I I was very interested in um, drawing attention to that as kind of a missing link. And I think that even though um, there are... I think a fair number of people really talking about scratch cooking now, more so than when I started doing the research for the book eight years ago. Mm-hmm. I think that there's still this missing piece where the workers are really um, oftentimes considered, like I think, an afterthought in a lot of ways, yeah. where there's this um, kind of trade-off between, well, do we want to spend more money on higher quality ingredients or do we want to make sure that workers are actually earning a livable wage and um, having benefits and things of that nature. And I think that it's really important for us to focus on both of those aspects of food justice at once. Um, One of the things that I think is really important to recognize, especially if we're thinking about um, school food as a place to not only feed children high quality food, but to also be shaping their tastes like in the future. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of the research um, that looks at, well, how do you actually get kids to eat unfamiliar vegetables uh, says that it's very important for kids to actually have a positive experience when they're being introduced to new foods. So to feel like cared for and to actually feel like they know the person who's feeding them and have a positive relationship with them. So it's really important that workers can actually afford to stay in their cafeteria job to make those long-term relationships with kids happen. Yeah. What is the, um, and certainly one of the things I really liked about about this book was that um, it definitely provided, obviously, like not only just a extensive history of who has been 
feeding children for, you know, over a century uh, in this country. But um, like, right, you know, in today's day and age, I think the school food service worker is fairly, I don't want to say demonized, that's not right, the the right word, but like, um, sort of like bears the brunt of, you know, it's like school food is awful. And it's the school food service workers fault. And that's obviously not true. Um, yeah. you know, but I, I do think this was like a refreshing kind of, um, take on like, look at all of the, what the kind of the role was originally did and what a lot of school food service workers want to be able to continue to do in terms of like comprehensive care. Well, I think that that was one of the things you asked earlier, um, you know, what made me want to write this book. And I think one of the core things that made me want to write the book and to write it in this way is to really honor a lot of the kitchen and cafeteria workers that I interviewed and that I spent hours like observing in school kitchens and talking to, because they would often tell me that they wanted to be cooking for the kids. They wanted to be making foods that um, they were excited and proud to serve the kids. But um, oftentimes that's not what they, you know, were being paid to do or Right? Or and have I think, the, um, the, the capabilities to do, whether that's like yeah, equipment absolutely. or technical skills. And I think um, another piece of it, too, is um, the idea of lunch shaming. So lunch debt um, that students might accrue if they don't qualify for uh, free lunches, um, then leading to these kind of punitive actions like serving kids like um, a cold cheese sandwich or like taking their tray away and throwing it away in front of everyone. Like those kinds of things, I think, have generated um, a fair amount of outrage in the news lately. (laughs) Um, But, you know... Sometimes I'll see these stories written in such a way um, in newspapers or online outlets that um, talk about individual lunch ladies doing these things, almost as if, like, you know, these lunch ladies want to be doing this, which is not at all, like... The The rogue lunch lady. Yeah, yeah, and I think that um, one thing we have to recognize is that... um, you know, it's it's a challenging job. Not only is it a very physically demanding job, um, oftentimes like it's a lot of repetitive motion. Um, kitchens, particularly where they are doing scratch cooking, um, like they um, can be very hot. A lot of the work can be like quite um, just physically taxing. But then when you actually go to um, the serving line, you know, some kids are excited to see you and are really like polite and others, you know, maybe not so much, but you have to kind of maintain your composure and try to be kind to the children that are coming through the lunch line. Mm -hmm. And then at the cafeteria space, you know, a lot of the workers that I talk to, you know, they're there because they really care about the children they're feeding. A lot of them started working um, in school kitchens and cafeterias in part because their own children um, might have gone to those very same schools or at least a school in that district. So, you know, they have a connection to the children that they're feeding. And so um, when they are told, you know, this kid is coming through the line and if they don't have money in their account, um, you have to give them a cheese sandwich or take away their lunch tray and throw it in the trash. Like, that's not something that the workers are, are wanting to do, right? Right. Like, that's a policy that somebody else has created that they're the ones who have to enforce and then have to kind of suffer the emotional consequences of that. So I, I think that um, in popular media, sometimes lunch ladies are portrayed as being mean or crabby, and I think that um, that's certainly not always the case. I think that there are a lot of cafeteria workers who, um, you know, despite all the odds uh, against them, they like really maintain a very positive attitude and are very kind to the children. Um, but there are some, for sure, um, 
maybe not always, but on like particular days who are crabby. And I think part of it is because they have to kind of create this emotional shield um, to protect themselves a little bit from uh, being so close to these kids that they can't always care for in the way that they would like to. Yeah. Um, All right. So let's look at like, can you help us? um, Can you unpack a little bit about like, like paint a picture of who these workers are. So um, you write that the majority of uh, school food workers are women, like over 90%, right? Yes. And um, which is very surprising, but like how much, um, what are like sort of the demographics like and how much are they working and how much are they making? And like, you know, what are their kind of like educational backgrounds look like? Sure. Um, So I I think that um, it's important to recognize that um, this is a very, very gendered occupation, and it always has been. Um, there have been more men um, coming into school food service departments um, as some jobs really improve in terms of quality. Um, so as an example, in Minneapolis Public Schools, which is one of the districts where I did a fair amount of research, um, when they transitioned from serving little pre-pack, almost like TV dinners that were made in a big central kitchen to doing on-site cooking in the school kitchens. Um, They went from having a lot of jobs that were only three or four hours in the middle of the day with very little room for career advancement to having a lot more jobs that were between six to eight hours, which um, would qualify for full-time benefits Mm -hmm. and things of that nature. And as that transition occurred and more kind of culinary skill was needed, but also um, like the jobs were approaching full time with benefits, they started to have a lot more men applying for those positions. So I think that um, that's um, kind of a trend that I would expect um, to happen in other places um, as the job quality improves. Um, But the people who um, are kind of the the core, like bread and butter, like school food service um, workforce, um, I would say that. Most of them um, do uh, have children, um, or at least when they started their jobs, had children. And one of the things that would be like appealing to them in terms of why um, working in a school cafeteria would be appealing um, is that the hours oftentimes match with the kind of caretaking responsibilities that they have outside of school. So the um, not only the hours that their kids would um, be off um, on an individual day, but um, kind of school vacations and summertime would match up um, with uh, their work schedule. So they would be able to kind of care for their young children at home. So a fair number of people um, do stay in those jobs for an extended period of time. Um, Although I think that um, increasingly a lot of school districts have trouble um, with retention and um, recruitment, particularly of people into entry-level jobs, because um, as more and more schools shifted away from cooking from scratch, um, particularly in the 1970s and 1980s, to really relying on a lot of these ultra-processed foods, um, the the hours that workers had available to them um, really shrunk. And so a lot of them... um, you know, were not really able to afford to stay in those jobs. And I think that's especially true today um, that for um, many workers, this isn't just like a supplementary form of income. This is um, a form of income that's very necessary to support oneself and one's family. Mm-hmm. So um, I'll, I'll get to some um, kind of more standard um, statistics in just a second. But um, the last um, kind of big report that looked at um, overall stats for cafeteria workers um, is drawing from 2008 data, so it's a little outdated. Um, But I did a survey um, with um, some workers in New Haven, Connecticut, um, in collaboration with the Labor Union Unite here, 
And um, we surveyed about 200 workers, and one of the things that we found that was really surprising to me um, was that two-thirds of the workers we surveyed were primary providers for their families, so meaning that their income was, like, the most important, you know, for their family. And they were the ones that, through their jobs, really needed to have health insurance for their families. So I think that that's an important thing for people to recognize is that um, this is a public sector job and we need for these public sector jobs to be better quality. So we have a real jobs crisis in this country with this overproduction of like very low wage and very precarious kind of jobs that don't really allow people to care well for themselves and their families. And I think it's very important the kind of jobs that we're creating through our public institutions and public programs um, don't fall into that same kind of trap of like, you know, Uber and things right. like that. Well, you, um, I mean, you write that the annual, this is of course of 2008, but you say that the yeah, annual yeah. medium income is just $9,300. I mean, is that yeah. So that's and, crazy. Um, the real the, the the reason that that's true um, isn't because um, of the hourly wage being particularly low. So the median hourly wage in 2008 was ten dollars and forty five cents, um, and only about twenty percent of workers at that point earned minimum wage. So these jobs, if you look at um, you know how much workers are making on an hourly basis, oftentimes look better um, certainly than jobs like in fast food. The issue is access to hours. Mm-hmm. So the, the median school cafeteria worker, again, in 2008, worked only 25 hours a week for 40 weeks a year. So uh, the issue is that they're not working um, a very long number of hours per day. Mm-hmm. And then because they have so many um, like times where they're not getting paid at all when school's not in session, since they're not feeding children during that time, um, it's very challenging for them to make um, a very high um, yearly wage. Um, so you asked a little bit about um, some of the other demographics of these workers. So um, back in 2008, um, the um, median age was 47. Um, so a lot of these workers, um, again, um, would have come into schools for the most part when their children um, were of school age and oftentimes um, would have stayed um, for a longer period of time. Um, about 21% of those workers would have no high school degree, but the majority, so 54%, um, have um, like a high school degree. And what um, some researchers um, out of the UC Berkeley Labor Center found when they kind of crunched these like demographic numbers, they found that um, the race and ethnicity um, of school cafeteria workers pretty much mirrors that of the states um, that they're coming from. Mm-hmm. So most of the time, um, there, if you look at the kind of labor force as a whole, um, it's very gendered, but it's not particularly racialized. If you look at this group of workers that we might call school cafeteria workers. However, I will say um, from my own observations and interviews and in school kitchens and cafeteria um, spaces, um, while like the census data maybe doesn't um, allow us to see this in such a fine-grained way, um, I think it's very true that um, the entry-level positions where people would be um, more so doing like dishwashing or um, serving food or in the cashier um, stations and a lot of these positions that are really just like three to four hours per day, I think that those are disproportionately filled by um, women and or sorry, well, women of color in particular. Mm-hmm. Um, and it tends to be more men and white women who are in like the supervisory kind of roles. Okay. So this, let's, I want to back up and kind of talk about the origins of the, you know, we're, we're talking about 
what cafeteria workers look like today, but um, talk about the origins of the National School Lunch Program. Um, and you write that it, of course, um, you know, it it's didn't spontaneously arise in 1946. It has a long history um, and one that was like feminist at that. So can you tell us a little bit about how this um, legislation kind of came to be? Because it was decades before anything at the federal level was enacted, right? Yeah. So 1946 um, is often a year that people will point to as like the beginning of this program. And it is true that that's when the National School Lunch Act was passed and the federal government kind of created this um, permanently funded um, child nutrition program. Um, But really, um, I like to think of the origins of the National School Lunch Program dating back to the 1890s. And one of my colleagues here at the University of Wisconsin, Andrew Ruiz, um, wrote a book called Eating to Learn, Learning to Eat that's Mm -hmm. all about the origins of um, um, the school lunch program. So I credit him as someone who really taught me a lot about what these early years looked like um, and really sparked my own interest in going back and trying to find a lot of documents and kind of learn about this history for myself. And a lot of what I found was that um, in the 1890s through um, kind of the 1910s, um, there were a lot of women who were very, very concerned about um, <laughs> kind of two things at once. So one, um, the quality of um, the meals that were available to poor children in particular um, in urban areas. So a lot of like um, poor kids didn't have access to nutritious meals. Um, This was at a time when, you know, a lot of their parents would have been working like in factories or even like some of the children themselves, you know, would have still been um, employed Mm -hmm. uh, to some extent in those kinds of environments. So there was this real concern about um, poor children's nutrition, but then there were also a lot of middle class and upper middle class women whose children um, were going to school and who needed to have um, you know, some sort of nutritious meal at school. And a lot of the women would um, sort of talk to each other and also write in to ladies' magazines expressing like how it was actually like quite challenging to, um, much like mothers today, I think, yeah. um, still talk about I love I love that. It was like, God, nothing, yeah. nothing has changed. Like the burden yeah, of have all these expectations, <laughs> yeah, um, and judgments yeah. about what you're sending your kids to school with in terms of food, totally. and that it's like I kind of loved reading that it was like just as much if a, a massive headache then as it is today. <laughs> Yeah, it, it absolutely was. And they even had like some of the same kind of um, issues where, you know, today people are, I think, increasingly concerned about the ingredients in food. Um, and there's a lot of attention to real food or clean eating. Like those are, I think, terms people throw around a lot. Yeah. Um, back then, um, there were concerns about food being like intentionally adulterated. So with manufacturers, for instance, um, taking flour and um, putting like sawdust and you know things Ugh. like that into it to like extend it to where it seemed like more right so yeah. it was all about this cheapening um, impulse of like how do we make food cheaper and cheaper so that we c- we as like you know these corporations can profit more from it so there were a lot of concerns that these women had about um, the purity of the food that their children were eating and um, one of the things that was kind of happening at the time was that um, these new um, sort of scientific techniques surrounding um, really testing food um, in terms of its nutritional quality, but also um, its purity were starting to become um, more widely used. 
so there were these tools at bay for figuring out, you know, whether food would be safe to eat. Um, but it was kind of challenging, again, much like today, for individual women to be doing all this work themselves to sort of vet and verify whether food was safe to feed their children. Right. So um, one of the big things that um, a lot of these women did was they participated in women's clubs. So these women's clubs were oftentimes concerned not only with like the charitable side of, for instance, um, you know, what do poor children in our communities need, um, but they also really thought about, you know, how do we make um, our lives, particularly in urban areas, safer and better for everyone. So this was kind of the same time period when public kindergartens, laundries, um, bathhouses, all sorts of kind of public infrastructure that we take for granted today um, was really being like envisioned and implemented in um, cities across the country. So school lunch programs were a part of that. They were this collective solution to a problem that for a long time had really been talked about as you know, a private concern that women are supposed to deal with on their own in the household. So the innovative thing that these women did was they really tried to carve out a niche for themselves within public schools saying, you know, we want to provide nonprofit school lunch programs. So we don't want to profit off of the sale of food to children. Mm-hmm. We just want to be able to make sure that kids can actually get access to affordable meals that are safe and nutritious and um, ideally tasty. So um, they uh, really tried to make this kind of a, a woman um a woman-controlled enterprise. Yeah, so a lot of these women who um, might have been like the first um, uh, kind of generation to graduate with university degrees in fields like home economics and dietetics, um, they were the ones who were sort of the professionals um, who would have been in charge of these early school lunch programs. Um, And then they tried to really create um, jobs, particularly for women who they thought weren't well-suited for factory work, so women who um, maybe... um, were a little bit older or um, for some reason or another just needed access to other kinds of work. Um, They tried to create um, these jobs for um, women in school kitchens to be able to cook and serve um, these nutritious meals to kids. Um, And so that lasted, you call that like the, that was like the progressive era, right? Yeah. And that kind of gave way to eventually, um, oh, by, like, by the way, one of the things I loved, and this is, uh, this is a quote from um, Caroline Hunt, which do you want to tell us just who she is um, really, really quickly? So Caroline Hunt, um, she actually ended up being, um, well, she was, she was like a philosopher of the home economics movement, um, but she ended up actually being a very um, influential person who wrote a lot of documents related to school lunch and feeding children for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. But she also happens to be the very first professor ever at the School of Human Ecology at UW-Madison, where I now teach. So you probably so. are, she's a big fan. <laughs> I am, and I guess like... She was like just a radical woman, and I think that I love her for that because yeah. she was writing over a hundred years ago about ethical consumption and what it means to be a conscious consumer. Yes. And she would really push people to think about, you know, when we're buying things as individuals, um, we have to think about the conditions under which those products are made. And she talked a lot about like solidarity and mutual aid across classes and across like race, racial lines. And so I think she was um, a really like progressive person for her era. And she did um, only last a few years at the university. Um, I like, and you're little, like, she was the she, she was the lowest paid, obviously, <laughs> because lowest, yeah, yeah. yeah, some things it's don't true. change. <laughs> 
And she had this really radical curriculum where she was really trying to teach people about the politics of um, how women could really control, like, because they were the ones who were shopping for their families, they had a lot of control over household wealth, Mm -hmm. um, particularly women from the middle and upper middle classes. So she um, was very much, like, trying to talk with them about um, using their money in very intentional ways. Yeah. Um, and also using their additional time to do um, what we might now call like citizen science. So, um, like advocacy so would, stuff? Yeah, yeah, so advocacy stuff, but also like um, she would uh, like kind of ask uh, people who would come to the university for um, these kind of summer trainings. Um, she would train them in how to test like milk um, purity, and she would also like train them on how to. Um, like test like water quality like in the rivers around Wisconsin and then she would ask for them you know to report amazing. back. Yeah. So it's like she was doing these things that were like very much like about like collective action and how like um, you know people can make change together and the university after a few years I think um, decided that they wanted to go more in a direction with home economics education being um, more about manual skills kind of related to cooking and cleaning um what I think in the 1950s often sort of became referred to as these like stitch and stir kind of classes where yeah. you, know, you learn a little bit about how to sew, <laughs> you learn a little bit about how to like, you know, make very, very simple recipes, but, but not like not manage the home. Yeah. Like not manage the home and kind of run it like, like it seemed like she wanted to empower women to do. Yeah. Um, so, okay. Yeah. So I just, I love, cause you had, you had, you had a quote that, um, she talks about like cheap food capitalism and, um, the need to, like you said, redirect their purchasing power to ethical food companies. I just love that. Like the, I mean, and I think a big theme throughout this book and certainly your early chapters was just like history repeats itself <laughs> because, right. We were kind of like right back to where we started from, but, um, okay. Which is which is crazy. But so this is like, you know, decades in the making. And then for 19, you know, this legislation was eventually enacted, but it was, um, it was done so without the voice of women who, you know, you talk about have this frontline experience with the nonprofit school lunch movement. Um, what were their demands, you know, and, and how would the program have been different today if, if what they were advocating, advocating for had been prioritized? Yeah, so they had really had this um, kind of test opportunity to think about, well, what does it look like when we actually scale up from having these um, smaller initiatives, maybe in um, cities or in rural areas, to thinking about things at the state level and then at the federal level um, during the Great Depression, because um, during the Great Depression, the uh, federal government first started to donate commodities, um, so commodity foods, um, to school lunch programs, and federal government also provided a lot of free labor through the Works Progress Administration. They hired a lot of um, poor, underemployed women to be working in these school lunch programs. So a lot of the supervisors of these state programs that had participated during the Works Progress Administration, um, during those school lunch programs, they had a lot of data. They sort of knew that 
there were certain things that were going to help a lot. So they knew on the one hand that um, they needed to have more public investment. So they needed to have access to um, more dollars from the state um, and federal government. They couldn't just rely on um, children's like fees, particularly if they needed to actually provide free lunches to um, all the, the needy children in their communities. So they knew they needed access to financial resources. They also knew that um, nutrition education, so money for actually teaching kids about what they were eating and so why amazing. it was good for them, yeah. um, that that would make a really big difference um, in terms of school lunch actually being um, something that is helpful in the long term from like a public health perspective. Um, they also really wanted um, things like school gardens, so sort of like the, the kind of wish list that today's reformers yeah. have, like free school lunches, uh, school gardens, um, nutrition education, like that was all part of the original vision. Um, but when it actually came to this legislation being negotiated, um, I would say that women were very, very um, influential and necessary for building a coalition um, and expressing popular support for the legislation. But a lot of the things that they wanted to see happen, including having the National School Lunch Program be situated in um, the Department of Education instead of the Department of Agriculture, did not happen. And mainly it was the interest of a lot of these um, uh, politicians who um, really cared more about the agricultural um, assistance side of things. Um, whose concerns were listened to more so than the women who had actually been involved in the program. So that's the thing that I think sometimes just really like makes my blood boil a little yeah. bit. But like the people who are actually like there on the front lines, like you know, delivering these programs <laughs> like year after year, um, they really got very very little say in what the program um, actually would look like once it became this permanent federal legislation. Um, yeah. And I think that one of the pieces um, that comes out of that as well is that there was originally um, some designated funding for, like, equipment and infrastructure. So actually, you know, the kind of, like, well, we don't have kitchens. Like, how do we make them? Right. And that um, piece of the legislation went unfunded for a very long period of time after the first year. Um, so it really put a lot of pressure on local communities to come up with the resources that they needed to create um, kitchen and cafeteria facilities. And as I'm sure a lot of people can imagine, there was a tremendous amount of inequality in post-war America. So a lot of the suburbs, particularly where middle-class white people lived, could afford to make this investment locally in building kitchens and cafeterias in their like newly built schools. But a lot of the urban schools that had been built in the 1920s, like in the cities, like around the U.S. and a lot of the rural areas that you know were quite poor, um, they didn't necessarily have these extra funds floating around to be making this investment at the local level. So a lot of them really got skipped over. And for the first two decades of the National School Lunch Program, there were a lot of children, particularly black children um, from urban and rural America who really didn't benefit from this program at all. So do you think that, you know, the the um, decision to house this program under the USDA, you know, or, and like and not the DOE? So are you saying that it was basically like more emphasis on um, using this program to move surplus crops um, in this country, which are, of course, 
you know, the yeah, commodity I, crops. Yeah, I think that that was definitely a part of it. So the National School Lunch Program, if you actually look at um, like the wording of the National School Lunch Act, there's essentially two, um, like two primary goals. So one is to safeguard the health and well-being of the nation's children, mm-hmm. and the other is to it's good. Um, that's a that's a good place to start. <laughs> it is a good one, um, but the other goal is to uh, support the domestic consumption of um, nutritious agricultural commodities mm-hmm. uh, and other foods. And of course, you know, we could debate what and other foods. What, what that actually looks like in terms of, you know, are these foods actually nutritious? But I think that um, there has always been a lot of politics surrounding, um, you know, what these um, commodity foods look like. But, you know, now um, only about 20% of the foods that schools are actually um, serving come to them through the commodities program. They're actually purchasing a lot of it um, on the open market. But the problem is that they have, like, so little money to work with um, that it's very challenging for them to um, really do a whole lot other than just go with some of the cheapest options. Well, what do these commodity, you know, can you help like just quickly, um, is this like extra corn and soy that gets processed that the schools can, you know, I don't know, like like make a, make a product from, or is it like, um, Dairy that's there's, made into yeah, cheese. Like, yeah. what are the commodities that's foods a great look question. like? Um, there's a huge list of commodity foods um, that are available to schools, and um, it could be things as basic as, for instance, like frozen blueberries that they could then turn into smoothies or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it could be something as basic as um, like flour or peanut butter um, or chicken, um, and some schools choose to get foods in these really basic formats. Um, Those are oftentimes referred to as brown box commodities, meaning that they just sort of show up, um, you know, in a brown box and they're in this really (laughs) basic form. Yep. (laughs) And you unbox them and you use them in your recipes. Um, But a lot of schools actually choose to do something um, that uh, is um, basically called entering into a commodities processing agreement where they might actually send um, a certain portion of their um, cheese to craft and instead of having to like grate cheese like a big block of cheese themselves in the school kitchen and make cheese sauce for macaroni they can actually send that cheese um, they can like tell the government we want our cheese allocation mm-hmm. shipped craft and then craft will like process it for them into any number of products that they can select from and then they get those finished products instead um, so same thing with like um, chicken nuggets um, that could actually be um, commodity chicken that um, a company like Tyson is processing um, so schools um, have this option of whether or not they want to send their commodities on to these like for-profit companies for further processing and to then get like a finished product that is easier for them to just heat and serve in schools Mm -hmm. or they or they can choose to get these more basic um, brown box commodities that I mentioned Um, and you know all of this so complicated right I mean for every anyone who's like school it just should be so easy we should just serve healthy food like yes and I mean most people have no idea how complicated the like uh procurement processes for school food, but I think it's worth noting how, how much, uh, do they have like at the end of the day to serve a a meal? The, the max reimbursement is like 
three fifty, right? So yeah, it's three dollars and forty one cents as the base, um, and then schools can get another seven cents um, per lunch if they meet the new nutrition standards from the Healthy Hunger Free Kids Act of twenty ten. Um, and then they can get an additional two cents per lunch if they're in like a high poverty school district where 60% or more of the lunches were served at free or reduced price. So right. kind of what you said, like the, the highest that you would really see um, for the reimbursement that they get from the federal government would be $3.50 per meal that's served. So so what does that mean um, in terms of like food? How much money yeah, do they actually have to so, serve? Yeah. Um, it depends upon like the local labor costs. Um, but I would say that um, typically having around a dollar to a dollar fifty, I think, is pretty typical. So the School Nutrition Association, um, they um, on their website, um, the kind of most recent data they have is from a 2008 report that the USDA um, did, which looked at the cost of producing school meals during the 2005-2006 school year. So again, like this data is a little bit old, um, but what that data showed was that. Um, the average school district was spending 37% of those reimbursement dollars on food, 48% on labor and benefits, 5% on supplies, and kind of 10% on other miscellaneous costs. So already a lot of the money is going to labor and benefits, and that's why um, a lot of school districts, um, they will rely more on heavily processed foods because it allows them to then hire workers for only a few hours and keep them below like um, the benefit level positions. So right. um, if you go like to your local school district and find out, for instance, like what the threshold is um, for qualifying for benefits, um, it might it might vary. Um, a, a, I would say a typical number tends to be around like six hours um, for full time. Some school districts that have uh, really strong unions. Um, it might be closer to, to four. Um, but what you kind of always um, end up seeing is that there are a lot of workers who typically are kind of right at this threshold. So, for example, if the um, threshold for benefits is six hours of work per day, there will be a lot of workers who have a 5.75 hour position. Um, yeah. So, yeah. I, I think that, just, you know, sucks. a lot of this, yeah, like a lot of the schools, it's like they're already spending a lot on labor and benefits. So, like food service directors, you know, they, for the most part, I would say, really would like to be paying their workers better. Yeah. But they're in a really tough position where, you know, labor is already a huge part of their budget, and they um, really can only go so low in terms of the food costs because um, they have to serve meals that meet the nutritious, like the nutrition requirements, and yeah. they have to serve like a particular quantity of food. So the fact that they're even able to do like what they are able to do in some school districts is amazing. Serving, like yeah, yeah, yeah. like um, <laughs> I mean, I, I go to some of these school districts. Um, where they actually have really robust like farm to school programs and do a lot of scratch cooking. And the fact that they're able to make it work with the kind of reimbursement dollars that we currently have is pretty amazing to me. Um, okay, so I we're going to take a really quick commercial break. Um, but when we get back, I want to talk um, a little bit about the privatization era, which happened sure pretty quickly after right after seems like really fast after the legislation was enacted um and then kind of where we are today and where we where we need to go so stay tuned
This episode is brought to you by Brooklyn Botanic Garden, a stunning 52-acre garden in the heart of Brooklyn, featuring spectacular plant displays and inspiring public programs year-round. Harvest Homecoming, an old-school fall foliage festival, comes to Brooklyn Botanic Garden on Sunday, October 20th. Celebrate cider season with New York cider houses and kombucha makers, bringing hard and soft ciders and fermented drinks to try or buy. A pop-up farmer's market will feature heritage apples from local orchards. Groove to the sounds of fresh Americana music and world beats throughout the day. Bring your friends and family and make a day of it with hay rides, lawn games, a children's Halloween costume parade, and more all in the heart of Brooklyn. Learn more about Brooklyn Botanic Garden at bbg.org. Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. My name is Dave Arnold, and I'm the host of Cooking Issues here on Heritage Radio Network. Every week, I answer listeners' questions on the latest innovative techniques, equipment, and ingredients in the food world. Have a question about hot rodding your oven to make great pizza? Give us a call. Hydrocolloid, sous vide, liquid nitrogen? No problem. You can find Cooking Issues wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. And we're back on Eating Matters, where today I'm speaking with Jennifer Gaddis about her new book, The Labor of Lunch, published by the University of California Press, soon to be released. Um, Jennifer, before the break, I said that we are going to talk about privatization. Um, so, you know, we talked, I guess, initially about kind of the history behind how this legislation, the National School Lunch Program, um, what led to it being enacted, it was enacted, and then seemingly very shortly thereafter, um, it started to privatize. And this was originally something that wasn't allowed, right? Like it was in the initial legislation, it was, you know, it was very clear that schools couldn't outsource management of their programs. So the one big win that the women who did so much to create these early school lunch programs got from the federal government when this legislation was created was this promise that these um, school lunch programs would be nonprofit and that schools would not be contracting with for-profit vendors. So um, any kind of um, like for-profit entity would not be allowed in the schools. So that changed in the late 1960s early 1970s when all those children who had really been excluded from participating in the National School Lunch Program, particularly in urban and rural areas, um, there was a lot of attention um, by the anti-hunger movement and again by this group of women working together who really uncovered systematic racism in the National School Lunch Program in terms of how it had been like rolled out across the country. And they sort of said, you know, we have to do something to address this and we have to do something to address this very quickly. And so there was this real need to scale up the National School Lunch Program very quickly and particularly to expand it to schools that didn't have any kitchen or cafeteria facilities. So um, a lot of these um, food companies um, had been sort of, you know, ignoring school lunch for a while because it didn't necessarily seem like a huge, like, lucrative kind of market segment. But as the baby boomers started coming to school, you know, population numbers swelled and they started to see, like, more of this profit potential. And they also started to sort of recognize it as, like, a real place where they could start to cultivate children's tastes and sort of brand identity early on. So school lunch, like, became, like, you know, a more culturally and also, like, economically um, important 
place um, for the food industry. So what ended up happening was um, the National Restaurant Association, which um, sometimes you know, food activists refer to as the other NRA, um, started lobbying the federal government to say, you have to drop this restriction on food service management companies. So um, listeners today, um, food service management companies, the ones that they might know most um, are Aramark, Chartwell, Sodexo. So those are kind of the big three to operate in schools today. But there are a lot of smaller, more regional ones as well. So um, a lot of these... Um, not only um, management companies, but also like frozen food manufacturers wanted to really get their foot in the door in schools. So they sort of said, hey, you have this problem where you need to figure out how to feed a really large number of people all at once, and you need to figure out how to do it in like tiny spaces that were never really built for doing this. So a lot of the expertise from the airline industry actually like played a pretty big role in figuring out um, how to deliver food to schools. And these little pre-packed meals, um, like what you currently still get on airlines, became mm-hmm. a really important um, like technology for like food delivery in urban schools. And from there, it just kind of became the slippery slope to um, you know more and more processed foods in schools, and then there um, were these additional legislative changes that started to allow soda and like fast food companies to really set up shop. The the competitive uh, foods. Yeah, exactly. Yep. And a lot of um, these foods um, that, you know, are salty, fatty, crunchy, sweet, you know, things that if kids aren't necessarily um, like qualifying for free or reduced price lunches and are just choosing what to spend their money on might be more enticing from a taste perspective started to be allowed in schools. And I think that this piece about privatization and really the kind of cheapening of school lunch, it really was amplified um, in the 1980s by some of the just tremendous budget cuts that the Reagan administration made to the National School Lunch Program. So um, we're talking like, you know, a quarter of the budget being cut. So this is like for listeners who maybe are of that generation, like the ketchup as a vegetable um, era of school lunch policy. And today, I think there's um, still pressure on um, some schools to outsource their lunch programs, particularly if um, their lunch programs are not financially self-sustaining, because unlike um, pretty much any other aspect of a school system, um, school food service is expected to be um, financially self-sustaining based on not only the reimbursements from the federal government, but also the revenue that they get from children who are paying like for the full-priced meal. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we don't charge kids for math class or English or anything like that, but we charge them differently based on their family income for school right. lunch. Yeah. Um, so schools that don't make their finances work, um, they oftentimes um, come under pressure of, well, you know, if we can't make it work ourselves, we're going to contract with one of these um, management companies because they're going to be able to like kind of get us back in line is sort of how the thinking goes. And I personally like tend to be pretty critical of the management companies in part because these are nonprofit programs. So I think that anytime you are um, contracting your lunch program out to um, like a for-profit entity. A, yeah, it's like yeah. a global, like it's not even, you know, some like little mom and pop for-profit entity. These are, you know, multinational corporations. Like they have a profit interest and they're they're making profit somehow on this program. So usually it's through um, finding ways to reduce labor costs um, and to reduce food costs. 
Um, so anytime we have this like for-profit motive, I, I do wonder like, you know, how are they actually managing to make a profit in this nonprofit space? So yeah. part of it might be economy of scale. So purchasing the same kind of foods for um, like all the different, you know, school lunch programs that they manage. But I think that the problem there is that that really goes against, I think, some of the current trends of people really wanting to have more localized school food supply chains, like yeah. participating in farm to school, purchasing from local providers. So I, I think that um, really, up to do that. Yeah, I think there's some some issues with the, the privatization piece. Um, but even, you know, today, the School Nutrition Association, which is the major um, like trade organization that um, represents um, school, like school food service um, directors, managers, cafeteria staff, like they have a really close relationship with big food manufacturers that I think um, can sometimes be problematic in terms of the policy positions that the School Nutrition Association ends up taking. Yeah. You know, I guess, okay, so I have two questions. Um, (laughs) I have a lot of questions, but my first thinking was that just to sort of like summarize, it sounds like there was never enough funding for this legislation. Like, I think that that's... 100% true. And I think a lot of that has to do with um, it being like very much like a form of gendered work. (laughs) Um, It's very, very similar to what mothers are doing at home and Mm -hmm. unpaid basis. And so I think that it was always like economically devalued. Yeah. And so, okay, so never enough. I mean, because even in you write just like states have to contribute. Is this is that still true that states have to contribute uh, money to the school food like budget for the for those schools in their states and that Um, kind of exacerbates a lot of economic inequities it has really changed a lot since um since that was the case so so now um it really is um states can contribute like optionally um but they are not required to do so okay so so not enough funding to begin with and so does this mean that a lot of kitchens and like the initial infrastructure that would be needed for scratch cooking was that never really created to begin with Correct. Yep. And so my next question is like, was there ever a golden era of like school food as you know, we would love to see it like fresh scratch cooking, um, you know, paying school food service workers a livable wage and that being like a very valued kind of position in the school environment, like healthy meals. Was there ever a time where we got it right? (laughs) I think it really depends upon, um, where you live, you know, I think that, um, as, as a federal program, like if we're looking at the nation as a whole, I don't really think there's ever been a time where we've gotten it right. Um, I think that there's always been a lot of inequality and I think that the program has always been really underfunded, um, at the kind of national level. I do think that people at the local level have like managed to, create some really fantastic school lunch programs. And I think that historically there have been some states. Um, Louisiana is an example that um, had for a long time really contributed a lot more to like worker training and um, investing in like scratch cooking infrastructure mm-hmm. in part because, you know, there's there's a really strong food culture there. And like people, I think, felt very strongly about maintaining like children's access to like a fresh cooked like meal, <laughs> you know, um, yeah. So I think that um, there were particular states um, 
where like if you would go you know from one school to the next you might find some really great meals um, and like the kind of scratch cooking that I think a lot of people would want to see today um, but I don't think that at the federal level we've ever we've ever really had it right so my next question has to do I mean and I think like the privatization and like the role of big food um, you know is very important to like recognize as a driver of why you know, the program maybe is, um, at least in part where it is today, but we are in a very interesting time where we are seeing not just nothing happening at the federal level, but like a rollback of all of the kind of like, you know, progressive gains that were hard fought and won over the past decade or so. And so in response, I think that we are seeing certainly, certainly in some industries, um, like, you know, big companies, industry step up and sort of fill that gap in terms of like doing the right thing. I'm thinking recently with like the, you know, the car manufacturers wanting to proceed with the air pollution, right? right? Like Mm -hmm. uh, restrictions from California that were enacted. So this is a long winded way of asking, like, do you see any um, movement in the food industry trying to kind of like do the right thing, especially as it relates to school food? Or is it just like they're not really set up to make a change? Yeah, I think um, so. This is something that I, I go into depth with um, in chapter three of my book, like trying to look at how um, there are a fair number of food companies that are trying to reformulate their products to remove um, what people often in the industry refer to as ingredients of concern um, and to make clean labels. Yeah. So, you know, to remove like the high fructose corn syrup, the artificial additives, like things that things of that nature um and i think that um that's definitely a big trend like in the school lunch marketplace so the school nutrition association um, at their big annual conference they always have a school food show where different vendors come and they kind of set up their products and they try to convince like the purchasers for the food service it's like a trade program. show yeah exactly yeah. um you know to purchase their products and i first went to one of those um in 2012 so right as the like new healthy hunger free kids act um like standards were going into effect mm-hmm. and then i went back about five years later and there was like a total, total transformation in terms of like the language that people were using and the kind of products that companies were trying to highlight. It was definitely shifting in this direction of like the industry, like trying to present itself as like cleaning up its like supply chain and ingredient list. Um, I think that um, there are certainly some companies that I think are are really kind of greenwashing um, Mm -hmm. themselves and trying to present this like mirage of healthfulness um, where, you know, they're just reformulating a couple products and they have a bunch of other things in their product portfolio that are just like their standard conventional offerings that have tons of chemicals and things like that in them. Um, And then there are other companies that I think are are taking it a lot more seriously. But I would say that um, my own like personal opinion is that it's great that um, schools are getting access to higher quality industrial foods um, that they can easily just um, plug into their kind of existing operations, just reheating and serving. But I think that that um, needs to be just maybe like a, a temporary place for school districts to sort of use to improve their lunch programs, but it really should never be the end because I think if um, if we end up relying on these food companies to just reformulate their products, um, we're not going to really be doing what we can in terms of um, directing public dollars to 
like local food producers, so farm-to-school programs aren't really benefited in that kind of way, and we're still trapping like you know thousands of women um, in these very short-hour jobs where they really can't afford to care for their own families on the wages that they bring home from caring for children at school. So I think that um, a lot of things like start to become possible, like for instance, having like school gardens um, actually growing stuff that then is used in school cafeterias and you know doing things that are really um, I think getting at the educational potential of school lunch I think becomes a lot more possible when we invest in a much more holistic way of envisioning like school lunch reform. Mm-hmm. So. You actually had asked about this golden era of school lunch, and at first I was thinking there wasn't one, but I actually want to revise my answer yeah. because I, I think that if I, I'm really thinking about it, during that time period um, of uh, the Great Depression, when there was this real emphasis on communities um, like you know, using their school lunch programs to not only benefit the children, but also a lot of places would set up, you know, community feeding facilities or community canning facilities. There was this real emphasis on like shared infrastructure. There was a a lot of gardening going on um, at schools and also like at the community scale. And there was like public um, investment in not only kitchen infrastructure, but on hiring workers, um, both women and youth, to work in these programs. So I think that if I had to choose a golden era, it would actually be then because um, I think that that um, that like sort of New Deal legislation, you know, now people are talking about like a green New Deal. Mm -hmm. I think that um, that really uh, probably was a golden era because it really allowed for a much more community-focused approach to developing school lunch programs. And with the school garden component, I think that that was really huge in getting fresh food into schools in an inexpensive way and in a way that really involved children in, you know, learning about food through this act of producing food for their school lunches. I was surprised to learn the volume of food that those gardens were producing at the time. And that's something that, like, I wish I knew, like, what really happened to the gardens, because I feel like there's not, like, a great historical record of that. Yeah. Um, well, can you but, can you remind me, what is the the total amount? I mean, but I was, like, blown away. <laughs> oh, um, I can, I'd have to, I don't remember off the top of my head, but I can pull it up. Um, it was, it was, um... A lot. <laughs> it was say. a lot. Yes. Yeah. yeah. It, was, it was a lot. And I think that um, rather than, like, I guess um, finding the particular number, um, I will say that I, I think the thing that is important to recognize is that um, by actually creating, like, the infrastructure and the investment in community gardens, um, what we were able to do as a nation is to really reduce, like, dietary um, health, like, disparities, like, the quality of people's diet, you know, based on income it really started to look very much the same um, by the end of World War II because of rationing and because of like all of this like food really being grown in community and school gardens and also in private like home kind of victory gardens. Yeah, it was it was amazing. Um, okay, so we have to uh, wrap up really quickly, but I would say, and this is a hard question to ask you to summarize, but in terms of like where we want to go, what are some of the like takeaways from this book that you want readers to know to kind of like um, activate around? I think the big thing is I really want people to um, understand that we can't um, ignore school, kitchen, and cafeteria workers if we want to have really robust 
school lunch reform. I think um, another thing is I want people to understand like the sort of feminist history of school lunch and to reclaim it as like a feminist issue and sort of the forefront of feminist food politics, um, in part because you know, 30 million children participate in the National School Lunch Program every day, but there's another 20 million who are eligible, who have access to the program at their schools, who are bringing lunches from home. And it's disproportionately people who identify as women who are making those lunches. Mm-hmm. So I think that, you know, there's all these studies that show that women um especially if they're working like outside of the home, really don't have nearly as much leisure time as men. And you like know, still to this day. Yes. Yeah. To this day. And I think that, you know, one of the things that we can start to do is to think about, well, how can we actually, um, you know, as a country invest more in collectively caring for children and collectively caring for the elderly. And some of the things that I really take away as being just these like points of inspiration from the history of school lunch is, for example, like in the 1970s, there were some really cool, like very innovative um, things that school districts were doing to set up elderly feeding programs um, in their school kitchens. And, you know, there's so many women today who I think face this dual pressure of not only caring for kids, but also caring for, like, aging parents. So I think the more we can think about how to create um, these spaces in our communities that are serving really high-quality food in ways that meet, like, community needs, Mm -hmm. um, the better. And so I I really would say that um, one of the things I want the book to do is to... um, Number one, like help people who kind of work in these programs better understand their own history. Um, this is definitely a workforce in schools that um, has tend to be tended to be more overlooked than teachers, for instance, like mm, when it comes yeah. to um, like collective like organizing um, and unionization. Um, but I also um, really want for a lot of the women who are currently spending time making lunches for their own children um, to take to school every day to realize much like, you know, women a hundred plus years ago did, that there's a better way to do it, right? Like um, we can actually create really high quality school lunch programs that kind of take some of the pressure off of women to be making these perfect little, um, you know, lunch boxes. Bento bento box lunches with, you know, whatever, like. That's one thing I'll I'll say is like, you know, since you bring up the the bento box, I spent um, a month in Japan doing field work this summer um, because my next uh, book project is going to look at school lunch programs in international context. I cannot wait to read that. Yeah. Yeah. Have you back. Yeah. Um, so I did some uh, interviews with moms in Japan, and in Japan, um, they have this real emphasis on um, not only food education, but also scratch-cooked lunches and making sure that the lunches are really introducing children to a lot of traditional Japanese foods mm-hmm. and a really wide range of just variety of different kinds of, like, fruits and vegetables and um, just dishes. And these moms would say that they just really appreciated their school lunch program because they knew that the dietitians there were doing a lot of work to make sure that the quality of the food was really good. They were also doing a lot of work to get local food into the schools. The Japanese government, their goal for schools is 
for them to serve a minimum of 30% locally sourced food. Wow. And some of the schools that I went to that are kind of at the forefront of their local food movement um, were serving higher than an average of 75% locally wow. sourced food in their school meals. That's so amazing. the moms like really appreciated that um, they could rely on the schools um, for you know doing this taste education, um, teaching the kids about like where food comes from, like all sorts of things like through the school meal because it really reduced some of the pressure that they felt um, like in the evenings um, surrounding like meal provisioning. Like they would still cook, but they could make like kind of simpler things because they knew that their children had had these things that were maybe a little bit more complex to make um, for lunch when they were at school. So yeah. I thought that was really interesting just in terms of like how they really talked about appreciating their school lunch program, whereas in the States, um, if you it's ask like shame. Like an average mom, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, and yeah. It, you know, you you write about how like this doesn't really work. I mean, it, it's not that it doesn't work, but you really need the participation of kind of everybody to get on the same page and to kind of have that like I don't know, is it like collective, like the funding, but also the support behind you know everybody's everybody's going to eat school lunch and it's well, going to be better because of it. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's a couple things going on. So one is, um, you know, individual kids, I think, can feel like shame and stigma around eating school lunch when other people aren't eating it in their cafeteria. So like the the meals that kids are eating can start to kind of code them as being poor or Mm -hmm. not. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think that there's also this issue of certainly finances. It, It takes a certain amount of money just to like Um, make your school lunch program function um, and the higher your participation. So if you can get more kids to participate, kind of the more money you have to work with um, because you've kind of covered some of your basic expenses already. Um, So increasing participation really makes a huge difference in terms of the viability of making school lunch programs better um, because it gives more resources to the food service directors to work with. And then I think at the kind of larger scale, Um, We've had so many middle-class and upper-middle-class parents opt out of the program um, really beginning in the 1970s that I think it's been um, a real challenge to generate the political will to really um, create, I think, the kind of school lunch program that we need in this country. So I think right now there's, um, you know, there's a ton of work that went into the nutrition reforms of the Healthy Hunger Free Kids Act, and there are definitely a lot of people and organizations who are working just to make sure that those standards don't get rolled back any further. But I think that, you know, that's not necessarily the kind of change that really inspires people. So I think it's time to, like, really think boldly and organize together to create the kind of school lunch program that any parent would be excited for their kid to participate in. Yeah. All right. Well, with that, I think we're going to have to leave it there. But um, just quickly, where can your book is due out in November? Is that right? Yeah. Oh, yep, I, in I, November. I've got the inside scoop. I'm so excited about it. <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah. well, oh, sorry. Go on. Thank, thank you so much for having me on yes, and yeah. for like asking great questions and letting me babble a little bit. Uh, um, so the, the book will be out um, in November and it's available for pre-order through University of California Press. And I think there's like a 30% like um, discount thing that you can get there. Um, and I know it's also at Amazon. 
and I'm trying to do some stuff like in advance. So if, if people are into um, Twitter, I am on Twitter, and I'm trying to kind of talk about some of these issues there um, in a more focused way. So I'd love to um, have people join me in that conversation. Amazing. All right. Well, thank you so much. I also can't wait to have you back on when you finish your next book. So excited thank about it. So <laughs> really right. appreciate it, Jenna. Thanks. Okay. I want to give a big thanks to our sponsors for their generous support, as well as our Eating Matters intern, Devani Latino. And thanks, of course, to the one and only Cheat Paul, the best engineer ever. Show music's by Tim Archer. All episodes of Eating Matters are available on the Heritage Radio Network website or as a podcast wherever they're found. If you haven't done so already, subscribe, leave me a comment, let me know what you think. I'm Jenna Lee Ute, and thank you for listening. This program is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right-hand side of our homepage. Thanks for listening.